VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If only we were, if only we were fresh-faced ingenues. When was the first time that you, uh, the the red light went on and you spoke into a microphone? (laughs) Oh, God. 1987. 87. I know. And that was when the earth was still flat. (laughs) Dinosaurs roamed forests. (laughs) So that was in a... Previous long-form Conservative government run. Um, yes, that's very true. Yes, that's right. It seemed completely unthinkable that anybody other than a woman called Margaret could run the country. Oh, you hadn't met Tony yet. No, I, Tony had not crossed my path. No. So where was that? Well, that was that was in Worcester. Okay. Yeah. And did you where were you, yourself? Where were you in 1987? Well, Still at primary school. Oh, no, that breaks so my heart. So I was at university oh, okay. in 1987. But I didn't... Um, so I didn't do any on-air radio stuff until I'd finished the training scheme at the BBC, oh, so right. that was 1993. Yeah. So, But there's five years between us anyway, so that kind of makes sense. And I didn't get on the training scheme. Okay. I didn't realise that we had this bone of contention between us. I, it now makes so much sense. I'm over it. Are you sure? Pretty much. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well... Yeah, I mean, you've done okay for yourself, though, Jane. Oh, what can yes. I say? I mean, I've had to battle through <laughs> without any of the official training. You haven't at all. Well, but I tell you what, the 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 difference will really show if we're <laughs> ever in a hostage situation and we have to report on it, because I have learnt that technique in Grafton House on the Euston Road, uh, where we all had to hide under our desks. Uh, for a good couple of hours. That's quite standard at the BBC anyway, isn't it? (laughs) And report on an ongoing hostage situation that was happening in the next-door classroom. Oh, okay. So that's where it might show that that I did the training course. You you passed that particular bit of the course, did you? Very much so. Right, okay. Well, I very much look forward to it. One of my finest days of journalism training, (laughs) I think. uh, I think rather weirdly it was suggested that the Queen Mother had been taken hostage it's just very alarming. Gosh, well, I wouldn't alarming wish that on thing. the dear lady <laughs> who left us some years ago now. Uh, I think anyone taking her hostage would need to have a very, very well-stocked cocktail cabinet. I don't think they'd get far. <laughs> <laughs> right.
right. Okay. Uh, what have you got? Dentistry. Yes. Because I was mulling over um, just dentistry the other day because it's been very much a, a topic in the UK. I mean, we, we'd very much welcome contributions from our many, many listeners on the continent and elsewhere about dentistry in your neck of the woods. But this contributor says, I am an NHS dentist. I nearly changed my profession last year as I was completely broken. On average, I had about seven minutes for each checkup. I was probably seeing 35 patients a day just to make reasonable money. The system was simplified to make pricing simpler, but ultimately it put a cap on how much was spent on NHS dentistry every year. It might mean that after around two to three hours of work split over different appointments for one patient, the dentist might take home around 30 quid. I've studied for five years to do this job and it didn't always seem fair. Some days I'd work my arse off and make around £120, bearing in mind I then have to pay my laboratory bills on top of that for things like making dentures and crowns. I didn't know that the dentist paid for that. Anyway, there's also a huge suing culture in dentistry and consequently we have to pay big indemnity fees every year to cover us. Luckily, I have stuck it out and I found a lovely practice that makes it easier for me still on the NHS. Private is alluring as there's so much more time per patient with a fair income, but I want to stay with the NHS for as long as I can, says our listener. Well, well, well thank done you, you. Thank you for that. Yeah, Yeah, um, because clearly uh, it would be easier if you did go the private sector but um there were some very notable pictures i think it was from this week of people just queuing literally round the block in bristol to register for an nhs dentist Mm. something's gone very badly wrong yeah Uh, what do you think to the suggestions that actually um you know kids need to have their teeth brushed or have supervised brushing uh throughout their early years of school well I think if it's necessary, do it. It does seem incredible that schools have got to take on yet another task that you might normally associate with the home. But if that's really required, it's very sad, but yeah, go for it. I don't know how teachers or support teachers feel about that. Um, And I'm not quite sure where they would do it. Would they gather round, you know, there's little tiny loos and sinks they have in primary schools, which you only ever see now when you go to vote. (laughs) Which obviously we'll hope to do later on this year in the UK. Um, and you, you're just, I'm always slightly devastated by the really low level of the coat pegs because <laughs> you just think, my, were my children this tiny when they went to primary school? That seems almost it well, just I think seems it's dreadful. It's more preferable um, that they do do their supervised toothbrushing in front of a basin rather yeah, than in the playground. No, no, you couldn't do it in the playground, but would there be enough room in a loo? Well, I suppose you just send them in. Five by five, ten but by ten. The logistics will need a bit of thinking. They will, yeah. Um, but I wonder, um, and it's one of those things where initially I thought, oh God, don't don't make teachers do something else. Um, but actually, if it could be incorporated as actually quite a fun part of your day, because quite often kids are much better at doing things when they're part of a group and they all join in. So maybe there would be much less resistance to scrubbing teeth than there often is at home. And it would, you know, solve something huge. Mm. In this country, aren't a third of all admissions to hospital A&E to do with kids' teeth? The teeth that me, I think... For, for kids, not yeah. a third of all admissions, but I, a third of all admissions I for kids. I think it's to have, yeah, emergency extractions. And which is so, so mm. traumatic for kids. I can also foresee a situation in which children simply do a lot of spitting 
around learning to brush their teeth at school. I think there could be some incidents. Well, I'm sure there would be, but I think it could really, really work. But if you are a teacher, uh, you know, would that be the straw that breaks the camel's back? Because you are doing everything else for our kids, as well as just the learning. Uh, you're making sure that they're completely aware of every single nuance of current political events and all the culture wars as well. So yeah. I'm sure you've got plenty of time and, in and your day you, for flossing. And then you've got toilet training as well. <laughs> Yeah. But apart from that, you've got loads of time oh, in the staff room to have a gossip. We've got a few teachers. We do, we do. Uh, Susie says this. Um, I love listening to you both, but I'm always a bit behind. So I'm sending my first ever email to you in this life or your previous life, slightly expecting the moment to have passed. We quite often go back, Susie. Don't worry about it. I sat bolt upright last night as you shared other listeners' birth experiences and a possible link with an aversion to anything round their neck. Uh, Fee, you pondered whether there might be other birth connections with forceps or von Tu's births, and it was this that caused my vertical moment. I was a traumatic forceps birth. Uh, I was ten pounds, uh, ten pounds one, ten pounds one ounce, uh, and I got stuck. That's uh, big, isn't it? That's huge. Huge. It's so big I could hardly say it, Jane. <laughs> Two doctors were involved, uh, one with his arms around the other's waist. That's <laughs> terrible. In their fortunately successful attempts to safely pull me out. Over my entire life, I've never liked wearing a hat of any description. Uh, I found the one Indian head massage I had akin to some form of torture, and I've never liked anyone stroking or touching my head. I dread going to the hairdressers. Could this be linked? I now wonder. Uh, well, you will come to the bit in the podcast if you are a bit behind, Susie. And I don't know, I mean, welcome to your summer by the time you listen to this, uh, where actually a psychologist said that uh, that she's done a lot of work on this, and it absolutely is a kind of trapped memory yeah. for lots of people. But Susie goes on to say, as a birth-related aside, my sole claim to fame is that I was at the time the second biggest baby to be born in Westminster Hospital. I don't know the weight of the biggest baby, but I've always been weirdly proud of this fact. I'm 54 years old and I know my record will long have been broken. So I really need to find another claim to fame. I'd stick with that one, actually, That's Susie. a good one. It is really delightful. Uh, but obviously, if we can find a bigger baby than that, we're very happy to celebrate. Uh, congratulations, honestly, from me, because that is that's a big size, and rightfully you should be extremely proud of yourself. Yeah, and also I've read the whole of that email because Susie is the executive director of talent development. Yeah, I also noticed that, and I was going to read it out too. Yeah. So if you're thinking of developing any talent, <laughs> we're here for you. <laughs> we're very much here for you. Um, we were talking about possessions and people's prized uh, treasures that probably wouldn't mean a thing to anybody else, uh, but do mean a great deal to individuals. And Caroline has emailed to say that my neighbour of nearly 40 years died suddenly in January. She was 88. Uh, we spoke every day, and I'm really struggling with witnessing her and her late husband's prized possessions being distributed to charity shops and the tip. I'm still listening out for the click of her walking stick, which indicated her whereabouts, and I realise now her safety as well. She was old school, feisty, shared her vast knowledge and experience with me on childcare, on cooking and on gardening, and also how to hang out my washing to create a windsock effect. She was a legend, and Margaret, I miss you, says Caroline. I think that's that's really lovely. Mm. Um, and thank you for that, Caroline. And I'm sorry that 
uh, Margaret uh, is no more um, and not not walking around your neighbourhood with her stick anymore. But um, that's a very, very positive clutch of memories you have of her. Yeah. It's very nice. Um, now, lots of people have been in touch over the last couple of days uh, with their lovely recommendations of how to kind of break the ice when you find yourself in a new community. And in fact, Colette, who is our original correspondent on this subject, uh, she sent another email as well just to say how grateful she was for all of the lovely suggestions from people. Um, and we have actually put Colette in touch with some of the people who are in her area in Staffordshire who've also said, why don't we actually, you know, meet up physically and, you know, see what happens from there on in. Uh, so will you keep us posted? I think Pamela in particular uh, had made an offer of kindness. And um, Lynn has just a quick suggestion to make, saying when I moved to a village a few years ago, a happy byproduct of redesigning my front garden. I don't think it's a euphemism, Lynn. I hope not. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that. Was the <laughs> was the neither had I till I read it. This is setting me up for Joe Mulcairins next week. Was the number of neighbours who responded? <laughs> my neighbours certainly would respond. Right, move on to Sophie. Now I'm going to get to the end. Oh of yeah, this. go on then. Just to be fair what to Lynn. What was the happy byproduct? <laughs> well, because Lynn didn't write it in a FNAF no way. I'm no, so sorry. She certainly didn't. I'm so sorry. Uh, it was the number of neighbours who responded to a hello, you're very visible doing your front garden. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's just getting worse. You are very visible doing your front garden. Can I just suggest that you just at least draw the curtains? Come on, get to the end. No, I can't. You carry on. Give it to me. I'm going to read this out, I know. Oh, it's not even that funny. I tell you what, I've just got a little bit giddy because I'm on holiday yeah, next week. Well. Sorry. Yeah. <clears throat> Second para. You're very visible doing your front garden. <laughs> and it helped me to make and it helped me to make friends very quickly. Even if your listener <laughs> isn't a keen gardener, just sitting out front. Just sitting out front with a book might encourage people to stop for an answer. <laughs> okay, that's pathetic from oh, both of us. Sorry. How old are we? Oh, God. <laughs> Combined age of, I'm not going there. Uh, Sophie says, just a, a short and sweet example of the sisterhood. I recently went to a Pilates class and while out and about, I'd noticed a rogue, serious chin hair, which I couldn't stop worrying about. Evidently, I touched it enough times during the class in that telltale way that in the changing room afterwards a lovely woman came over with a pair of tweezers and a knowing look solidarity at perhaps it's most trivial but still very much appreciated says sophie isn't that wonderful yes nothing needed to be said no, no. um i did actually a friend put on a whatsapp group last night a very funny picture from do you follow i'm not on the x or twitter anymore but there is quite a funny person called the archbishop of banterbury <laughs> Yes, I know yes. who you mean. Yeah, and they, they are funny. And they had posted an image of a, cl a clutch of people in fleeces and appropriate outdoor wear uh, in a village somewhere in England who had gathered with a birthday cake to mark the first birthday of some temporary traffic lights. <laughs> <laughs> and it basically, it is England or Britain in a nutshell... Um, it's a passive-aggressive protest. We don't do revolutions in this country. But it involves craft, doesn't it? Yes. Oh. This is just, you know, it's just a way of saying, right, enough is enough. 
But what does the word temporary suggest to you? The bloody lights have been there for over a year. We're getting a cake and we're going to mark its anniversary. I mean, I'd love to know what's happened to those lights since the cake was baked. Oh, lordy. So it was John Major's big election winner, the Cones Hotline, Cones hotline wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yep. And yeah. I think there's, there, well, I mean, there's definitely still a need for that. Well, I never understood it. You were supposed to ring up if cones had been in place, but no work was going on. Was that what it was? Yes. It was a way for people to vent their anger as they were driving around uh, Britain's many and varied motorways, A roads and B roads going, there's nobody working there. Yeah, I know, well, there never is anybody working. <laughs> you don't get post, you can't get your teeth done. And nobody's working. But do come to visit Britain if you're, if you're elsewhere. It's wonderful. Shall we take ourselves to Zimbabwe with yes. one of our listeners, Kate, who grew up in Zimbabwe, where, where Kate and her siblings went to boarding school. Uh, my sister attended a school in Harare, and when she was in sixth form, she and her friends adopted a fluffy yellow chick from a stall on the side of the road. They used to keep it in the boarding house illegally and would refer to it by the code name TV, which would allow them to dismiss any untoward cheeping sounds by saying loudly, oh, it's just the TV. Anyway, uh, obviously the TV outgrew school and so Kate had to take it back to the farm. Her sister was tasked with the job of rehoming the rooster at the end of the term and brought him back to live in our farmyard. We were subsequently disabused of any notion that all roosters are sweet and entertaining. As he continued to be known as TV, he grew to be enormous and became the terror of the yard. He fancied himself as a guard dog and would launch an attack on anyone who entered his personal space. I shall never forget the sight one day of my then 11-year-old best friend being discovered by TV during a game of hide-and-seek, chased unceremoniously across the garden lawn, her shrieking terror and him flapping his wings with his beak outstretched in menace. I'm sure most roosters are benign and friendly. Perhaps TV was the exception to the rule. It's very odd, isn't it? Um, I mean, that, that's no reason why TV wasn't. Yeah, she, she, he clearly was uh, an exceptionally angry and aggressive rooster. Yep, an aggressive man. <laughs> was he little? Because sometimes you do get that. No, I think he grew to be huge. He was huge. So he wasn't a particularly short... Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, so I'm, I'm not just. I'm generalising about short men, but some of them can be Napoleon syndrome, can't they? That does does happen. Napoleon himself suffered terribly from it. Do you think if you're a medium-sized man, you feel very left out of the stereotypes? Because <laughs> the big men have got one, and yeah. the little men have got one. What happens if you're just in the middle? What is medium these days? I think it's probably about five seven. Oh, no, that's quite short, isn't it? Is it? I mean, look, neither of us are in front. <laughs> seems big to me, Jane. <laughs> it seems huge to me, but I'm just... Because um, I... Uh, where was that function we went to where... Uh, oh, yes, it was Claire Balding's book launch, and um, she had a couple of male relatives who were six foot eight. Oh, it was painful trying to talk to them, wasn't it? Well, I just... I mean, I, well, I would have needed to stand on a stepladder. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was... The, yeah. I think posh people are just making them bigger. Do you think? I don't know. <laughs> I work in the NHS, says Joe, and along with colleagues from across a lot of different specialities, I've noticed a real rise in abusive behaviour from both patients and their families. Being shouted at, often for things that you have no control over at all, such as the waiting time for an appointment, used to happen infrequently. Now, we all agree it happens regularly through the working week. It's definitely got worse since lockdown, and whilst we all appreciate there are huge problems with our healthcare system that people may well feel justifiably upset about, it is really hard to manage people who you've never met before getting irate and personal with you. 
I'd be interested to know if this is happening in other sectors such as retail or hospitality. I think it's only in recent year th years that we've seen people shouting at frontline staff. Are we just becoming more of a shouty society? So let's just throw that one out there, because people, let's be honest, people have always abused radio presenters, haven't they? As, as soon as it was possible to contact a radio presenter, the abuse came flying in. Yes, although I don't think, because the first people to ever contact a radio show were Jimmy Young's listeners, were they? and he would say, a phone call has been received yes. from Barry, and then he'd read out what Barry had told him. It was very carefully typed out for him, wasn't yep, it? His, uh, he didn't mess with Jim beleaguered researcher <laughs> but you're right uh, we are now the endless butt of people's bad days aren't yeah. we yeah and i completely accept that because you know, for reasons best known to myself i've chosen to do this for a living and nobody has to like you um but there's absolutely i'm always stunned to see these little signs everywhere you go saying please don't abuse our staff you think, and it's well, always in the post office yeah, or post the office is a classic yeah. yeah and supermarket and you know why do you need to shout at somebody in a hospital or a gp's surgery it's just awful and people i think i think joe's right i think it is happening more often but we'd love to hear from you because you may well be in one of those uh, people facing jobs um and i think it can make you very upset and why should you be made upset at work yeah i agree um i would love to just hear a random selection of the phone calls that are played for training and recording purposes so you know if you are yeah. always being recorded then there have got to be uh, dreadful phone calls that are then used in workshops to try and mm. teach the poor people on the other end of the line how to moderate calls and i know that sometimes i've definitely been uh, way less understanding and more antsy to somebody on a phone than i would be actually in real, in real life, life. Yeah. so i think that all builds something up as well doesn't mm. it yeah it does and um I, and I agree with you i think i've probably been the same and it's 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 horrible and you obviously you shouldn't do it um we were talking about the way uh doctors and specialists can refer to patients as pleasing pleasant pleasant kind and you think you've got the answer well i, I was also... contacted on the twitter oh right yeah. okay well uh jane says i don't know about consultants but both my partner and i were described as pleasant by our physio we laughed about it at the time as it sounded a bit odd but we are both pleasant most of the time on another topic if anyone's struggling to find friends in a new town if they're at all active i'd recommend park run uh, and you can walk it as well, of course, can't you? You don't have to run. Uh, Jane, thank you for that. But your friend, or, or well, the person who made contact, said... Said uh, that, the, that, it, that it can be a little bit of a code with doctors, simply because if you aren't describing somebody as pleasant, it might alert them to the fact that you're not pleasant. Oh, I see. So it's the inclusion of pleasant that just goes, this is a, a kind of nice person to be dealing with. But if they don't say that, and they just maybe just give you a profession, then they're kind of saying, mm, good luck with this one. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right. So, and because I think, the, I think the word pleasant is the key. It's being used a lot. That's the code word. Yes, it's it, it's clearly a code word, and I'm going to I'm going to cherish it now. Yeah. Now that I've been, we've both had I'm it. I'm going to aim for pleasant. Yeah. Nothing higher. Never anything higher. Mm, I should be pleasant. so lucky. It's not going to happen. You're looking at your phone. No, because I was going to find out who it was who'd said that, oh, I so see. I could be nice and uh, kind, and you know, uh, make sure that I attribute the right. 
piece of knowledge to the right person. But do you want to crack on and read the Polly McKenzie key? No. I just want to mention John, who says, I'm a bloke, I'm 64, but despite this, I've listened to the pair of you for years. No bar to entry. <laughs> Um, I heard you read out an email about a woman being outnumbered in her house by quite a few males. Well, says John, I have been lucky enough to have had four daughters. Even the dog was female. I have lived with menstrual tension for 38 years. John, you need to speak to somebody about that because 38 years is a long time to have had premenstrual tension. It really is. In my humble abode, someone was always about to kill me for absolutely no reason, he says. Luckily, I now have five grandsons, so things have evened out. Um, keep your podcast coming he says I really enjoy them John thank you and thank you very much for, for listening we hugely appreciate it and how lovely to have five grandsons now so you've got your own five aside there brilliant absolutely not that girls can't be in a five aside oh well done uh, Anna Piggott <laughs> Uh, laughing out loud at this pleasant broadcaster description in a consultant's letter I think the absence of being pleasant is supposed to mean you aren't pleasant so okay. there we go Yeah, Anna right. thank you very much indeed for that and you um, were talking about facial hair, hair, her, facial hair, a bit still a black there, but then it is in the blood. Um, Nancy in Wisconsin just wanted to add to this uh, debate about facial hair. This is very, very uh, lovely, actually. Your chat about facial hair and who will care for us when we can't manage it really hit home with me. My mother lives in a memory care facility. It's understaffed and somewhat underskilled, uh, she says. Unless I'm around, her whiskers are left to grow. She was a very dignified and well-groomed person and she would be embarrassed if she realised how she looked. Dementia is such a cruel disease. I'm sure it is very challenging to help people who are confused. But I think little things like keeping up with those whiskers can help them to maintain some dignity. And that's Nancy in Wisconsin. And thank you very much for that, Nancy. Um, and you're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, it's turned out to be, hasn't it, from all our correspondents to be what you might think of as a very small thing, but actually of such deep meaning mm. in its various forms, who does it, who's thought about it, you know. And, and you know, we just know, we just know that we don't want to be the whiskery woman, you know, somebody's kind of talking to the hair on your chin instead of looking into your old eyes. Mm. So let's not be those people. Uh, we can add that to the list of things that we need to set up and do and form later on in life. It's a very busy third age at the moment, oh, Jane. I tell you, you and I are never going to... When are we going to be able to stop? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, right, shall we hear from Polly McKenzie? Who is Polly McKenzie? Polly McKenzie is a political veteran. She is a former Liberal Democrat policy advisor and speechwriter. She was director of policy to the Deputy Prime Minister, Nick Clegg, for five years from 2010. So that was during our coalition government between the Lib Dems and the Conservatives in this country. Dear listeners from abroad. Uh, she's also run a think tank and she ran operations for the Women's Equality Party as well. And she now works at the University of the Arts in London. An irony that I think is not lost on her because the Liberal Democrats and their failure actually to succeed in the coalition government uh, has often uh, been attributed to a stratospheric u-turn that they did on tuition fees so free education free university education being available to all uh, was a promise from the liberal democrats that they then didn't keep so i'm just putting that in there jane in case people need a little bit more knowledge well i'm wondering whether for people outside the uk you need to talk more about who the Liberal Democrats are. Would you like to do that? Well, I'm just going to say that they are Britain's uh, third party. So we've got on the right, the Conservatives, on the left, Labour, 
And in the middle, usually eating pitta and hummus, we've got the Liberal Democrats. They're sort of neither one thing nor the other, a little bit of both, some good, some bad, harmless, some would say ineffectual. <laughs> oh <my> God, <laughs> is, make is, it stop. Is make that it enough? Stop. Okay. I think, well, I love the description of them as harmless, but. <laughs> Uh, you can you can answer the emails on that one. Uh, right. Uh, she is also, back to Polly, she is the vital fourth voice on the How to Win an Election podcast, which is presented by Matt Chorley, our esteemed colleague, uh, and also Danny Finkelstein and Peter Mandelson, who are kind of, um, gosh, they are bruising gurus in their own different political corners. Oh, yes, yes. I wouldn't want to upset either of them. No, so please don't. So just... Shush. Oh, oh shush. Just... Uh, Polly came into Times Towers to talk about all of this, and I started by asking her what it would take for the Lib Dems to make a real impact in this forthcoming election. Uh, some sort of unexpected event like, I don't know, a, a dog shooting scandal for both the other political parties. I think, you know, the reality is in a first-past-the-post system. As you know, it would have to involve an alpaca, wouldn't it? If Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer were caught together killing an alpaca, that would help the Liberal Democrats. In a first-past-the-post system, it is almost impossible to be a third political party. You know, in the run-up to 2010, the Lib Dems were by far the biggest third party in a first-past-the-post system anywhere in the world. The SNP are a bit different because they are just a, a regional party in one place. And and so once you are kind of off the map, the ability to break back into contention in any individual place, in any election campaign, is just, it's just phenomenally difficult. Um, I think it took, what, 80 years for the Liberal Democrats to really build up to that position of being the minority party in a coalition. Probably be another 80 before that okay. happens again. So the alpacas are safe, really, aren't they? Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what Rishi Sunak is planning. Um, he he does seem to make some interesting political judgments. Maybe he's got he's got something up his oh. sleeve. So, given all of that, what's the mindset of somebody who wants to join the Liberal Democrats or work for the Lib Dems or try and represent the Lib Dems in Parliament? That's a great question. So, I I actually joined the Lib Dems in, about six months after I started working for them. Um, I wanted to be a political journalist and I was working as a property journalist and I thought, well, I'll just get some political experience because I couldn't seem to get a job uh, working as a political journalist. And I, I sort of fell in love, actually, with uh, the idea of being a campaigner. There's something incredibly tribal about all party politics, but especially in a small party where, you know, you have this sense of uh, righteousness, maybe self-righteousness, uh, a belief that... There's a line Tim Farron used once at a party conference where he said, I am tired of being right and coming third. And, God, you know, if you feel like that's who you are, it is so powerful uh, as a way of building a sense of tribal loyalty and distinctiveness. And so it's a bit like supporting a football team. It's not completely rational. It's a sense of belonging. Um, and, and you can get swept up in that for years and years and years. I think it's why people find it so difficult to change their political affiliation because it is like switching from Liverpool to Everton. But what does it say about our kind of national psyche that a party that is largely regarded as decent uh, from, you know, both 
other ends of the political spectrum is the party that always does least well. Is that on us <laughs> as well as on the people who are in the Lib Dems? Well, I mean, democracy is always the fault of the voters, isn't it, really? Um, half of voters have below average intelligence. That's just maths. Um, but in a way, that's that's... The, the beauty as well as the horror so of do you democracy. Just, do you want to just kind of shout, stop being thick? No, no, you, you can't because, again, it, the, uh, people are also... Um, well, I, I like people. I'm on, I guess, team human. But even even then, right, half of people are below average kindness. It's just... It's maths, right? So um, it is partly the logic of the two-party system that... In most circumstances, it just makes sense to vote for the established parties. Um, and it, in the run-up to the first election I worked on, the 2005 general election, there was there was a campaign that Lib Dems were doing, a, you know, like party election broadcast, which was a poll that we had done of, if you ask people, if you thought the Liberal Democrats could win in your area, who would you vote for? And the Liberal Democrats would have won, I don't know, something grotesque, sort of Putin-esque, 87% of seats. And so we had this um, this visual of the whole of the United Kingdom, a bit like a weather map, but just exploding with bright yellow light as everybody turned to the side of righteousness. Um, and, and that was attempting to persuade people that it was worth voting with their heart. I used to be Nick Clegg's speechwriter, and I remember writing him a line in the run-up to 2010 election, which was, again, you know, vote vote with your heart. Don't worry about who's up and who's down because you're still you're trying to fight that gravitational pull. Um, but actually, a couple of things happened. First of all, 2010 to 2015 abolished the idea that Liberal Democrats were just a sort of inherently decent sort of also-rans who could be the repository for any vote because they... Uh, we, you know, I was involved, spent five years being uh, absolutely involved in difficult decisions that lots of people disagreed with. So that sense of just being everyone's second choice vanished completely. Um, and and it forced the party to really confront a sense of its identity and what it was there for. And I, to be honest, I think it still really struggles with that, struggles to think what its, what its unique role is in mm. British politics is. So it's kind of the emergency waterproof that all sensible people pack on holiday but never get out of the suitcase. Nick Clegg, <laughs> uh, do you keep in touch with him? Are you in touch with him now? I had lunch with Nick uh, at some point in November, I think, uh, in Putney. It was very nice. And he paid, which is good because he's richer than me. Well, I did want to ask you about uh, his remarkable uh, salary at Meta, which is variously um, estimated to be... Yeah, I don't know what it is. I don't know. Someone said it was a kind of £7 million package or whatever. He will have made a lot of money yeah. out of failing upwards, basically. But I wonder whether you have any sense of slight disappointment. I mean, Meta, I think, is in quite a difficult and dark place at the moment in terms of its responsibility, in terms of tax tackling, you know, one of the major problems of our time, which is safety online. Uh, do you think that your former colleague could say more and do more? I mean, he, he is in a powerful position within the company. No question. And I think he, he took the role, or at least, you know, that's how it was talked about at the time, partly because increasingly these vast companies, especially in that 
sort of media, social media space, are making decisions which in the past only really governments would have got involved in. And for them, at least, I completely understood the idea of having somebody yeah, who knew what it was like to be hated, but also somebody who was capable of thinking about public benefit and societal benefit and the role of institutions in that. You know, I mean, Nick and I would probably disagree on some stuff. We always did when I worked for him. Spent 11 years working for him and disagreeing with him all the time. So, uh, But at its heart, I think there's a dilemma that all humans face around the way in which you want to try and make the world better. Assuming that you do want to make the world better, but I think most people do, is, you know, do you go on the inside and of of a potentially bad thing and make it better than it would have been without you or do you stay on the outside and retain your your purity um and i often think about a jean-paul sartre play that i was forced to study at 18 called les massales dirty hands which is, i mean it's sort of about terrorism as well so i'm not endorsing uh, political violence but it there's this speech about you know but one, one the sort of the main uh, antagonist, really, who says, I have dirty hands, I have plunged them uh, in in blood. And that's the thing. I think that's, that is Nick's theory of change, right? Is it's better to be on the inside. And, and he firmly believes that it's better than it would have been without him. Is he right? I mean, it's for everyone to decide and he and his maker, if he believes in one. And, and lots of people feel much more comfortable... Uh, as a movement, as activists, not being responsible. I think the world needs both kinds of people. Um, and I I think I, having been in government, I, I do respect those people who are willing to, I guess, put their, put their reputation on the line, put their necks on the line and, and, and be sort of a profound disappointment to their activist friends and neighbours in the service of secret progress. Yeah, I think that is a beautiful answer, if I may say so. I think it's ticked the box of friendship, which you clearly have with Nick Clegg, whilst at the same time alerting us to the fact that you might not be his biggest cheerleader in that role. So congratulations. <laughs> Can I ask you a, a serious question about yourself? Are you in the same place that you would now be if you'd been a man with your political and advisory career? Do you know, I ask myself this quite a lot, actually, because uh, some might say that I myself have failed upwards in that I wasn't, uh, I was part of a, a political movement that took the Liberal Democrats into government and then, you know, basically obliterated 80 years of progress for that party. And somehow I still have jobs. Uh, I still even get to go on the radio. How cool is that? Um, but equally, I do sometimes... Uh, reflect on the the challenges that I faced being during that period in government. I had two periods of maternity leave whilst I was on um, uh, Nick Clegg's staff and I and a couple of other female colleagues both had the experience of going away and coming back to our jobs kind of having gone from underneath us and male colleagues who went on sabbaticals came back to pay rises and promotions and it wasn't out of malice or sort of active misogyny, but just that sense that politics moves at such pace that it's quite easy for people to be forgotten. I didn't get an honour when I left government, and lots of people told me that I should be really angry about that. But I, 
I like to imagine that if I'd been offered one, I'd have turned it down because they're a bit silly. So I quite like the the mystique that maybe I was offered an honour. Um, but I also think I'm not sure I would be on the radio at all if I wasn't a woman, because Liberal Democrats are kind of relatively inconsequential these days. And I have the benefit of helping people with their uh, equality numbers. Mm. Oh, no. Oh, no. See, I think that's, no, that's terrible, Polly. I'm sure it's true. Do you really think that? You think that, you know, there's a, there's a box that goes, need a woman, here comes the tick for it? Uh, uh, well, I, obviously I'm also terribly personable and charismatic. Don't know. But uh, I think it's a good thing, actually, that, that producers or everybody is forced to think about who whose voices are you representing. But nevertheless, that I, I sometimes do think, yeah, that there was a space made for me. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. We're talking to How to Win an Election's Polly McKenzie. I asked her if she had ever been disheartened that her role was undermined because of taking maternity leave, even in government. I think it's really um, difficult for organisations, especially those that move at pace, like politics, to take that pause and think about the the way that the working environment is effect- making it possible for people to be in or, or be out. You know, I would drop my daughter off at uh, childcare at about 8.30, and so I could be in for nine. But, you know, in politics, the day starts at eight. And it was almost impossible to get anybody to recognise that there might need to be a different way of working if you want a different kind of person you know when I was in uh, number 10 we had um a civil service policy unit that was recruited nine people uh one woman who was sort of very actively engineered to come and take that role from maternity leave somebody had to go and visit her at her house to persuade her to do it um and, and she was phenomenal um but there were three old Etonians and so it, I don't know it of course these places of work like that need to rethink why is it that 
only a certain kind of person who can cope with a certain kind of toxic masculinity wants to work here. But it comes from leadership, right? Like, I think if a prime minister wants to change the culture of his workplace, he can uh, or she can. And uh, unfortunately, we haven't always seen that from our leaders. Um, uh, what do you think the Labour Party is uh, going to have to do to reassure people that U-turns aren't just a standard part of its driving practice? So we're talking the day after there's been an unholy row about what Rishi Sunak said in Parliament about Labour's U-turns, and, and we'll park that element uh, of the trans debate and just focus on changing direction. Uh, doesn't isn't it a very bad look, even in opposition, to not really be able to tell people firmly what it is that you're offering? The dynamics of being in opposition basically suck. They suck for democracy because in government you can spend you know twenty eight billion or not spend twenty eight billion, and everyone takes it as sort of obviously deliverable you know the, the the budget can easily have a big gap in it where oh yeah we'll, we'll just take 47 billion out of public expenditure in 2028-29 and because it's in a budget document and looks authoritative people don't question that when you are in opposition everything you say is torn to shreds by uh, the people who have much more power which is the government obviously uh, one of the reasons for 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 asking anyone who was involved in the coalition government about U-turns will be, huh. you know, the... <laughs> what was that yelp? <laughs> I love talking about tuition fees. It's almost as much as I love singing uh, the song about putting the kettle on. It's like, it's just my life's burden. Is it? Is it, though? Does it, do, do you wake up in the middle of the night and there's still a bit of cold sweat somewhere? Uh, no, I don't, actually. Um, so I think that the, the mistakes of tuition fees were political rather than policy. And I have come to terms with being evicted by the voters. We probably deserved it, you know, in part. But in policy terms, that uh, increase in tuition fees um, enabled universities to essentially be, during that period, relatively protected from austerity and to continue to widen participation. People from poorer backgrounds continued to go to university in more numbers than they ever had before. And the proportion of poorer kids who went to university went up faster than the proportion of richer kids. And during that period, the, that widening participation agenda continued apace. It was after 2015 uh, when uh, the the Conservatives got rid of maintenance grants and changed the profile of how you pay back your tuition fee with your loan, that it became a lot more unfair and you started to see a kind of a deceleration of that progress. And so, I, you know, the, the politics of tuition fees was mishandled from start to finish and people are absolutely entitled to feel betrayed or angry with me, if they like, with the world, with Nick Clegg, totally fine. But actually the policy continued to have the the goals that I think matter most, which is educating people, reducing the gap between rich and poor in terms of opportunities in life and keeping our universities thriving. That has all been lost, but it at least wasn't my fault. Are you still Chief Social Purpose Officer at the University of the Arts London? I am. You can tell that I like universities because, yeah. you know, I'm just book talking, yeah. Uh, do the students there listen to the podcast? 
I don't know. Um, I mean, if they've got any sense, of course. We don't teach any politics, but our students, like so many students, are incredibly politically engaged. They, they are activists. They have this vision of a different world and they absolutely dedicated to bring it into, uh, into reality, even if it's just making a film about it. Uh, would they, do you think, know who Peter Mandelson, I want to say was, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel that's dangerous. Is is the correct term? That's like we should we should survey them. I'm sure I'm sure people do. You know, Peter is a controversial figure, and you know, lots of politics is incredibly controversial on campus. Protecting freedom of speech and freedom of expression is important for all universities, especially for an art university, where you know, like there there is a really deep understanding that artists need freedom and they need freedom from the state. Uh, and uh, and I so I expect there are lots of people who have enough political history to know that they really, really hate Peter Mandelson and others who might deeply love him. Mm. Are you enjoying doing the podcast? I it am. It sounds like you are. Yeah. It's Well, it's lovely. Um, uh, I, think, I think Peter it considers me an oddity. Um, How does that manifest itself? Well, he just sometimes looks a bit surprised when I tease him. He thinks of me as a very young creature. I'm not very young. I'm in my mid-40s. But nevertheless, to, a, a, I guess... No, what's what's the male version of a grand dame? I don't know, but that's what he is, isn't he? Of, of the Labour Party. And so, I don't know. The fact that I am, in his mind, a young woman who doesn't take him very seriously, I don't know. Mm. Interesting um, dynamic. And until this week, uh, you have been a very rare female voice, actually, on political podcasts. They really have been dominated by men. And I don't think it does us any favours, actually, to dwell entirely on the fact that you're a woman. But uh, have you ever felt that you have needed to kind of, uh, you know, simply get to the end of a sentence <laughs> before a man interrupts or whatever? Have you felt that pressure at all? I think, absolutely, but I think every woman feels that quite a, a lot in a lot of meetings, a lot of engagements. The the challenge with, well, you know, I mean, radio, you obviously know a lot more radio than I do, but, like, people who talk over each other are really annoying. And so finding a way to elbow your way into the conversation without interrupting or being the shouty one is genuinely difficult. I think, you know, Matt Chorley does a great job. He's brilliant at trying to remind us to, you know, make space for the other. I think Peter and Danny have such amazing stories. And also they live in a different world from me. They have dinner parties with all sorts of famous people. And I, I don't, but... That's okay. I don't mind being the also-ran. That was Polly McKenzie, and you can hear more from her on the podcast How to Win an Election, available from wherever you get this podcast from, actually. And do you know what, Jane? I'm always hugely admiring of and grateful to uh, women and men who talk very honestly about the difference that having kids made to their work, particularly when they went back to work. So maternity leave in this country, we are way behind other countries. Well, uh, way ahead of the United States, aren't we? We are ahead of the US, but, but we are so behind countries uh, oh, yeah. that would be our comparators in Northern Europe. Yeah. So, you know, we tend to overwhelmingly 
uh, still have mums who take the time off for long periods of time. And although there is access to shared parental leave, which was brought in by the Liberal Democrats in that coalition government, uh, it isn't taken up uh, nearly as much as it is in other European countries. And it's complicated as well. Uh, because you do have to liaise between those two employers, I think, in order to make it work, um, and and of course it of course it has an effect, and you know we know, don't we, from conversations we've had with younger women that it it puts women off having mm. children mm. because it's still seen as to be such a terrible kind of speed bump in your career, and the cost of of childcare and and the trouble people have getting a nursery place. I mean, it is mind-boggling. You have people now, certainly in the UK, whose mortgage is less than what they're paying in childcare fees every month. And, I mean, that just strikes me as being completely unsustainable. For the overwhelming majority of people who have time to think before they get pregnant, I think a lot of them are thinking, and they're thinking, I won't bother. Or, more sadly, I can't. I just can't. Or I could maybe have one child, but I honestly don't think I could afford another. Mm. But I think it is especially disheartening to hear that even if you mm. work in government, which you would, would hope would right. be full of people trying to solve the problems of the nation, that actually that key thing uh, of you've got to drop your kids off at nursery, so you arrive in the office after other people have, have started, and that puts you back a bit. I did just really slightly despair at, at that memory, actually. Mm. But I was very grateful to Polly for saying it, because that's the other thing, isn't it? Sometimes I think we are fearful of telling our own truths in case it weakens uh, people's perception of us. So you keep it all in, and that's not a good place for it either. No. And then actually, if you're certainly at my vantage point, you sort of forget about that, the incredible stress of... The last minute, you know, because a child can't go to nursery with impetigo or if they've uh, had a, you know, they've suddenly got a really high temperature half an hour before they're supposed to go. And then what do you do? Well, you've got to call in sick yourself and take a day off. And it's just it's immensely stressful. And but, but for me, I must be honest, I, I, I have slightly forgotten about all that now. Uh, and I shouldn't because I think it's um, I think the battle is still very much mm. being fought. And I think it's it, it's it's not it's not going to be an easy war to win at all. But there are just such immediate lessons to be learned from other countries who are doing it better. And they're not complicated lessons. They are expensive to the state for a while. But it is very expensive for the state to lose parents to parenting. It's just a fact. Yeah. But then I did. When was that? Did I? Did I hear somebody on a radio station or did I read a letter in a newspaper from somebody who actually just making the incredibly unfashionable point? Is it fair to children to put them into these nursery settings? Oh, no, I agree with that and hugely. You have to think, OK, God. Uh, so from my vantage point, a long way off this, I, I, I do, I can see what they're getting at. Well, I can see... It's all right see, for me, though, isn't it? I can see what they're getting at, but I think um, if it's something that everybody does with their children... It's just accepted, uh, you know, that you have a really, really decent childcare facility, you know, within 10 minutes, 15 minutes of where you live, uh, that is state subsidised and everybody goes along to it. It's a really, it's a communal thing. There's no judgment going on. There is a lot of judgment about childcare choices in this country. I think that's a step forward that might ameliorate that. Um, but also, I personally, there's a little bit of me that just really wants to weep for both the parent and the child, and the child that I yeah. inevitably see on a tube train 
going home, quite a long way home, mm. at 6.30 in the evening. Knackered. But that's because our working hours aren't allowing that parent to do anything different. Mm. So that changes too. But look, people will have their experiences and it just it is, you know, better an empty hoose than bad tenants, as my mother always used to say. Best to get it out. If you'd like to get it out, then we are your place to get it out. Very well. What a lovely thought. We're your place to get it out. <laughs> well, now you put it like that. Put it back in. I don't want to see it. Have a lovely couple of days. Fee, have a lovely week off. Yeah. And uh, because Jane Mulcairins is my podcast co-host next week. Yeah, good luck. Well, the smotometer will be taking a battering. It's going in for a service over the weekend, so it's still able to function. Do you want me to bring you some kind of, I don't know, some kind of high-vis defence wear? (laughs) I might have to just wear a crash helmet. Uh, Anyway. Oh, Mulcairins is lovely. She's lovely. She's just a bit fast living. And that presents something of a contrast to myself. That's a good thing. Right, um, we're back. Well, at least I'm back and Fee will be back. Uh, Jane and Fee at Times.Radio. Again, we cannot emphasise enough. We love your emails. Keep them coming. And just thanks for being a part of this. A little bit of sincerity there. It's not all smut. Sometimes we can be quite nice. Bye. Well done for getting to the end of another episode of Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Henry Tribe. And don't forget, there is even more of us every afternoon on Times Radio. It's Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5. You can pop us on when you're pottering around the house or heading out in the car on the school run. Or running a bank. Thank you for joining us and we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. Don't be so silly. Running a bank? I know, lady. A lady listener. Sorry. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.